Hi Chris, how are you? Good evening Rod, yes I'm well and apologies that we are recording later in the week than we would like. These things happen, I always feel as long as we get it out at least in the week, it's not the end of the world. Yeah, it's nice to surprise people maybe and have a slightly fluid schedule I guess. Yeah, and I think we said last time you were on holiday and you know we, we managed to get an episode out a little early, so one a little late, not the end of the world. Yeah, agreed. So it's episode 82 and it's the 23rd of August and it's 2023. Yeah, we're marching through the months, aren't we? Can we dive straight into follow-up? Yeah, let's do it. Let's do it. So based on the conversation we've had the last couple of weeks about Zoom, initially changing the terms and conditions and then rowing back rather rapidly from that, this was just a note from a a news article I found in the register. This is follow-up and not news because we've been talking about Zoom so much. From an organization called the Software Freedom Conservatory, Conservancy, sorry, just saying, in the light of all this, you should maybe be a bit cautious about using Zoom to do things. Because if they changed it once, they could change it again. And, you know, you just need to be a little more careful about these things and maybe consider using some free and open source software instead, which possibly isn't the worst idea in the world. But I think we're all quite embedded in the things that we do now. And certainly our attempts to use things like FaceTime haven't gone well. So unless you want to try something else, I think I'm all right with Zoom for this. But it does make me think twice. Yeah, but it's a tricky one, isn't it? Because it's fine you as a organisation saying, right, let's use this insert platform here, whether it's Zoom, Teams, Google Meet, or some open source one. But if you're then going to use it with external people, you're then putting the expectation on them to buy something, sign into something, install an app. And it always puts me off when I have a meeting that is not on Teams, if I'm honest, because I'm good to go on. No, but it's just what I use all day, every day. And then when I have to go and deal with somebody else, um, and then you've got to install it. And like with Google, they make you set up an account. And it's like, well, why can't I just join as a guest? I don't need an account. I'm just joining a meeting. I just want to type my name in as Chris and join, join the call. So. I mean, equally, I feel the same about Zoom, much as I'm drawing out the flaws in Zoom at the moment. That Every time I've got to have a Teams meeting, anyone on my team literally goes, oh gosh, how do you use this nonsense again? Yeah, it, it doesn't really matter what it is. It doesn't matter if it's Teams or Google or Skype. God forbid, back in the day, you know, that it's what you get used to using in the day-to-day. And anytime you're asked to do something a little bit different from that, it's going to give you pause for thought. I mean, do you remember GoToMeeting? I'd forgotten about GoToMeeting. I mean, GoToMeeting was there long before a lot of these other things. And WebEx. Yeah, and WebEx is still going. Apple even announced that they were going to be part, you know, you could use WebEx on your Apple TV. And I hope Teams do that because for me, if Teams works on my Apple TV... I could enroll it into work and you know bring your own Apple TV for doing meetings in at home. Fantastic. Well, I got to think actually your conference center. You know, bring back the Apple TV hooked up to the to, to the various conference things. And if you can run a, a you know a meeting on the TV in your in your webinar room, that's not bad, is it? Actually, you know, stick it on your projector and all the rest of it. That's not a bad solution. It's quite a cheap device. It's quite a cheap device. It's certainly a lot cheaper than a lot of the custom built things that we've put in over the years. Yeah. So anyway. I, I kind of get it. It also makes you wonder, it's a shame there isn't like a protocol that's shared and you can put your own friend's end on it, if that makes sense. So that, you know, like sending a text message or an email it is a common protocol and you can put different front ends on it. But it would be good if, if you could do that maybe. And there was, you know, kind of like we're talking with uh, social media and having the uh, activity pub framework where all the social medias can, could, could talk on the same framework. It'd be great if you could have that for video conferencing, but I guess they all sprinkle their secret sauce on how they do it and how they encrypt it in their codex and their integration with your business, and therefore they're probably not going to want to do this. At the same time, there are things like Jitsi, which you may never have heard of, that is an open source protocol for video conferencing. 
where you can spin up your own server and have it. And it is open, you know, you can make use of their meeting thing, you can have a meeting with a distinct URL. I remember using it before the pandemic and it was all right. Uh, I suspect it probably would have been better if we'd sunk, spun up our own thing. But that is open and free to use and can be encrypted and all the stuff that you're talking about. But it goes back to what we were saying a minute ago. I think people get very embedded in, well, what's on the computer now? And for you, Teams is on your computer, so that's what you use. You know, it's whatever it's what the other businesses you're dealing with use, so it just becomes the habit for what you do. Again, for us it's pretty much Zoom, except when we're dealing with the NHS, who are in the same sort of position that you are. Of preference, I'd probably prefer something open source because that's kind of the way I roll. But this didn't work well enough for it to become sticky and embedded. And you sort of hit the nail on the head there when if I were to send you a meeting jitsi.org slash something, you'd think, What on earth is that? Why would I click that? You know, and and it may be ultimately a better, cleverer protocol, but it hasn't got that stickiness really. It's gone away. Anyway, I'll put a link in the show notes if people are interested in the open source version of this that you can add bits and pieces to you. And it's quite an impressive thing. You should have a play with it at some point. Maybe we should. No, maybe we shouldn't do the do this on it. Maybe, but it, it, it is interesting these things exist because let's face it, FaceTime is never going to be the dominant platform. No, it's not at all. I think it's just because it's not on Windows as well. So in the corporate space, I guess it struggles, which I don't get why they don't do that. Why? if they really want it to be a competitor. And I think Apple have been slow with this with Apple Music, with things like FaceTime. There was obviously talk of whether iMessage would be on more platforms, having web front ends. Apple has been very slow to have a web front end and do native apps on other platforms, whereas they should be doing it. Why why are they not, not doing native apps for their things? I think though the problem, like you say, with Jitsi is that it's just nobody knows about it it just hasn't got that brand cachet of zoom or teams people have heard about that the marketing's very good and, and that can be the problem with open source software yeah absolutely oh, they've probably missed the boat if you're not big at this point you're never going to be big anyway link in the show notes like i say moving on second thing and this was just something i picked up that we've touched on a few times and this is apple's crazy pricing for particularly upgrade pricing around things and this was a, a toot that john syracuse did whose podcasts we we know and love where he commented on one of, it's a bit meta, one of Quinn Nelson's YouTube videos, where he says, we all joke and complain about Apple's upgrade pricing for RAM and SSD space, but it can't really be said enough. It is, as Snazzy HQ, that's Quinn Nelson from Snazzy Labs, rightly exclaims in this video, ludicrous. And I watched the video, and I think I'd encourage others to as well. And his point about the, is about the 15-inch MacBook Air and how it's probably not worth it, actually. Because the base model that you get with 8 gigs and 256 gigs of, of, of SSD isn't enough. You know, for the most basic use, why would you buy the bigger machine? You'd buy the cheaper machine to begin with. And the second you start going up in the MacBook Pro line, so if you buy the base MacBook Pro, it comes more RAM in the box for not an awful lot of price differential. And when you add the $200 or $400, I forget exactly what it is off some head, to, to upgrade your RAM and then to upgrade your SSD, you're into quite expensive machine territory straight away. So yeah, it's a great machine. Yeah, it's got a lovely screen. Yes, it's got nice speakers and a keyboard, cool colors. But the second you start thinking of that sort of size, you're upgrading it and you're spending a lot more than it says on the tin. Yeah, so I went through exactly this when I bought my laptop. I wanted a 13, 14-inch laptop. I didn't really mind. And I was pricing them up and I was looking on the refurb store and I was looking at various sales. And I actually reached a point where actually I could get the Pro for not a lot more money, but I would get the better screen. I'd have some more ports. And it just became a no-brainer to go to the Pro because as soon as you do anything with the Air, you might as well get the Pro. Unless you really want the lightest laptop you can get, you probably should just go for the Pro because the base spec is better. The price point is slightly higher. And obviously, if you can get one refurbished or on sale, 
it is, I think, a no-brainer. So it is a problem with Apple, and they do hit you at every price point. That is a blessing and a curse, I think. It's the same when you look at the iPad lineup, you can buy like an iPad at every price point, and you've just got to find the one that's probably best bang for the buck. And sometimes that's buying a slightly chunkier laptop, but it might have more power, or it's buying maybe last year's model, which is obviously something I ended up doing. So it is tricky. I think because they just too, they hit too many price points. It would be easier if bit, they had a gap in between. I, I 100% agree. And it's what sort of prompts this for those that aren't going to go watch Quinn's video is that you can buy a two terabyte stick of RAM for $97 or something like that. Whereas to go up to that same sort of thing on the MacBook, MacBook Air is $800. And you think it's that's the fastest SSD that you can currently buy. It's good enough for running games. It's yada, yada, yada. And Apple are charging a markup of seven hundred dollars on on that, and that just blows my mind slightly when you think about it in those terms. Yeah, and we all expect a bit of Apple tax, but there's Apple tax, and then there's Apple tax, and it's like there's Apple tax on the Apple tax. It's too, it's too much, and but it's always been that way. But it does feel like it's got excessive, and for us here in the UK, the dollar rate is just not helping us on this one. Absolutely not. But I think Americans are hurting from this too. Yeah, no, everything is more expensive. I think that is common. And there is an article today about iPhones becoming more expensive in the next iteration. So I shudder to think what an iPhone Pro Max 15 might cost you should you choose to upgrade this year. Yeah, well, we know the folding phones from Google and Samsung are up to the £2,000 mark. So we've got to be thinking the non-folding phones from Apple are going to be in no, maybe not starting there, but you won't be adding many options to it to get up to that sort of size. Yeah, agreed. Moving on, our, one of our very favourite perennial stories since we started the podcast is Activision, Blizzard and Microsoft. And the people that have been stood in their way up till now have been largely the UK's Competitions and Mergers Authority. Competitions and Markets Authority? Yeah, Competitions and Markets Authority. Markets Authority. So, actually, Microsoft have walked the deal back a little bit and said, okay, we'll try something different. What if all the cloud gaming part of the games actually came from Ubisoft and not us in an effort to sort of appease the CMA? I think this is fascinating that they're actually willing to structure their deal in such a way that they sort of carve off this part of the business and actually give it to another provider in order to give that. Yeah, it's it's quite common, I think, with this kind of deal that actually we're trying to do this this deal. These are the things we really want. But if it appeases you, we can take something out of the pie to make it appetizing to swallow, I guess. I'm amazed that the UK have got so much sway that we we managed to to get this in. It's, I find it really odd how it all works that you've got to appease all these different authorities. If that makes sense, it's, there's no one global authority on these things. Yeah, I mean, ultimately, and I'll read from the article. It means that if Microsoft does close the acquisition, then it will not be able to release Activision Blizzard games exclusively on Xbox Cloud Gaming, so their platform. Microsoft won't be able to exclusively control the licensing terms of Activision Blizzard games on rival services either. So I actually think that's pretty decent. You know, it's almost guaranteeing that those things can't just exist on Xbox, can't just exist on, on the Windows Live equivalent of that. It's got to be accessible on other platforms. I don't particularly like Ubisoft either. If you've ever tried to log into any of their online services, it's not great, but I still think having this sort of division where it's not entirely just on, on Microsoft in this brave new world they're proposing, at least they've, they've made some sort of movement in the deal. So I think it's a positive step. Yeah, maybe this will bring some improvements to Ubisoft if they're obviously going to have a lot more eyeballs and, and people logging in. So hopefully it's win-win and it's better. Obviously, a slightly worse service, but on more platforms than a, an amazing service on one platform. Yeah, definitely. Moving on, and we'll stick to Microsoft because you know I, you know, I might like my little bit of Microsoft bashing. It's the, it's the old Apple person in me, but hopefully everybody can see I'm, I'm not above bashing Apple as well. 
Microsoft OneDrive this time has a fairly willing and eager ransomware double agent role to play. Did you see this story? I haven't seen it, but I am interested in it because we use OneDrive a lot in our corporate space and we we rely on it a huge amount for a lot of our documents. Basically, it's going to be quite easy for somebody to hijack it. You need an account on it, get somebody to give up their account credentials, and then you can leave session tokens lying around, which allows the exploit to go. And it's more complicated than that, but that's basically the way you start getting into it because OneDrive leaves shadow copies everywhere. You know, you delete something, it leaves things behind, so you can always recover your drives and all the rest of it. Basically, you can use this feature of OneDrive to break your way into multiple levels of Microsoft OneDrive. So that's not a good look, is it? No, it's not a good look. Like you say, it's probably slightly more complicated, but it's worrying because OneDrive is so prevalent everywhere now and most people are signing into it without realising it because you sign into Windows now with your Microsoft account and instantly it's syncing your desktop and your documents. Yeah, it's a slight concern. Is there a a fix for it? Not at this point. I mean, the ultimate goal of this is if, if the attacker manages to hijack the Windows workstation that OneDrive is running on, then they can use the software on the machine, so they don't need to install anything, to actually encrypt everything on that local machine, presuming, presumably everything that's attached to the OneDrive as well. So if your backup and your, sh- your shadow copies and all the rest are existing on OneDrive, they've got your machine and they've got any files you've put out there too. So that's a proper ransomware attack where they own the keys to be able to unencrypt whatever it is that they've locked up, presumably part of your business too. So, yeah, that's not great. It's pretty clever. It's very clever. Attackers work in not mysterious ways, but very devious ways. Yeah, agreed. But uh, hopefully Microsoft will have a fix out soon. It's worth reading the article in the register, though. It describes it very well. Should we move on? Yeah, my third Microsoft story for the week, because i got to love it. And this just mixes two of our... We're crossing the streams on this one. We've got a little bit of chat GPT AI type stuff and a bit of Microsoft. Apparently, some some people in Ottawa discovered that if you were asking Bing Search to recommend you a restaurant to eat in, it was recommending a local food bank. Wow. (laughs) That's not a good look, is it? It's really not a good look. And actually, I think this was a Microsoft travel-generated article that obviously it used... Forget the Microsoft equivalent of this. Now, the chat GPT that Microsoft uses under it. Copilot. Uh, Copilot to recommend the travel thing. This had written that. And because it was obviously a mentioned thing in things about Ottawa, that's where you should go when you're on a holiday. Yeah, well, we know AI and chatbots aren't always tip-top on their responses. I was using in my car driving. I wanted to go to Dartmouth. And it's, it was trying to get me to Dartmouth in America. And I was like, that's not quite what I'm looking for. You thought it, it might start a little closer to home first before suggesting alternative locations. So that was the car map, not Apple Maps. I know, Apple Maps. Mm, I had a similar problem in Canada. It was trying to take me to America rather than the town round the corner. Yeah, it I, seems I odd, doesn't it? I remember exactly what it was, actually. I was three miles away from Lake Louise, and I said... Okay, Dingus, navigate me to Lake Louise. And it said routing to Lake Louise, which was 700 miles away in America. Wow. it's Yeah, it's odd, isn't it? It obviously goes for the most common one in the world rather than the closest one to you geographically. I've seen it a couple of times now, and it is frustrating. And often I find, actually, don't use the Dingus. Type in where you want to go because it's a lot easier. But obviously you can't do that really while you're driving, even though Siri yeah. will pull up a, and the Maps app will pull up a keyboard. 
Yeah. Anyway, this is a bad look for Microsoft. I, I, I'll resist reading the actual Microsoft travel recommendation that it gives, but it's tasteless in so many ways. People are, you know, going to Waterford don't want to be recommended to food bank. People at food banks really need the food. You shouldn't be sending people there taking their food, for goodness sake. Presumably dressed for dinner, you know, in your tux or whatever. I just, I don't like this at all. And Microsoft blame it on human error, not the AI, but I struggle to believe that. Yeah, and especially if people obviously are looking to go out for dinner and spend money, they should be taking food from people that aren't looking to go out for dinner and can't spend the money. Absolutely. Right, let's move on to an Apple story. Apparently in the iOS 17 beta, there is another hint that the i15 Pro will have an action button. Yeah, I saw this. They've changed the, the, the Taptic Engine pattern apparently. I was just trying it on my phone now and I thought, I think it's different, but it's hard to remember what the previous flip the silent button was like if that makes sense but it feels slightly different to me so yeah maybe we're going to get an action button it feels like a no-brainer to me to get an action button on the phone why wouldn't they do that i can imagine it's going to be the torch for most people i'd have thought so too or the camera shutter perhaps you know for others i slightly wonder about it in the sense that when this was first rumored we were getting that it was going to take away the mute switch on the side of the phone and i think it's been walked back from it may not be the mute switch at this point I really like the mute switch. I always leave it muted. I don't like the mute switch. It's more of a fidget toy. I just leave it muted the whole time. I don't want my phone to make a noise. So I would like it to be a button. However, I'd want it to work differently to the Apple Watch. So the Apple Watch Ultra, you you can use the side button, you set an action, but then it just takes it over for every app. And what would be better is I want it to, you know, be the torch when I'm on the lock screen or the home screen or the watch face in this case. But when I'm in an app, I'd like the app to be able to use it for something, if that makes sense. And I don't like that it's a global button rather than an app-specific button. And yeah, why not give us two buttons? You know, you could have like a little rocker button in there, like 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 the volume up and down kind of thing, and just do it do it once and do it right, if that makes sense. So it'd be interesting to see the implementation details. I'm with you on the context of where switching. I mean, it might be you're in the shortcuts app. You always want it to launch a particular shortcut because you're in the shortcuts app. You know, if you're on the lock screen. You want the torch of the camera. You should have that sort of choice. If you're in a podcast app, maybe it should take you to your playlist or, or you know, there's lots of context you should be able to define on. I do think Apple probably won't like the complexity of that though. You know, some user ends up in some app and presses a button and it launches an action they're not ready for. I could see that being sort of against their user interface stuff. Whereas the one on the watch, as you say, it's pretty simple. You get one button to do a thing. For me, it launches the Workouts app. I guess if you press and hold it, it will make a tone as well, but that's that's about it. Yeah, I think that's right. I'm trying to remember now. I haven't worn mine for a few, about two months now, so I'm struggling a little bit. Fair enough. Should we move on? Yep. So we've got some monitors coming up then. Yeah, I just thought this was interesting. I know we, we like an odd reference to a monitor, and, and you, you were going to say you don't need any other monitors. The only monitor you need is the one I'm using right now, even though the firmware sort of needs updating every so often, and I can't actually switch it off. But I always like the, a good story about a monitor, and there's two from Dell, uh, sorry, one from Dell and one from Samsung that caught my eye here. No, I think both these are quite interesting. So first up, we've got this Dell one. It's a 24-inch USB-C monitor. So for me, tick, tick, they're, they're I think 24 is like the sweet size, but it's got touch on it, which I think is super interesting. And I kind of like the idea of this. Like, this would be great when I've plugged my iPad in and I could just touch the screen. Like, I can't believe it's taken this long for a monitor like this to come out. I then scroll down and some of the, it's not the most beautiful looking. It's very Dell. Like, you you can't deny it's Dell, but I think this is great. I used to work on touchscreen monitors 20 years ago in that were in doctors' waiting rooms where you could navigate and, and look at prescriptions and what have you. And yet here we are 20 years later, and 
touchscreen monitors still aren't that prevalent. It, it, I don't understand why it's taken this long. I think these look great, and there should be more of these, especially like in reception areas and things, where you could sign in, just touch the screen. Normally, it's, I guess the iPad has f- filled that space now. But I'm keen to see it. I'm a little disappointed with the specs. It's 23.8 inch, it's 1080p, it's not 4K. So it's not something that I would be buying. No, but I think the use case you've just outlined there are more likely to be the ones. This is designed not for a standard Windows desktop or a Mac desktop. For all you get, Windows laptops with touch targets and the rest of them. They're still not very accurate. What you want is an interface that's a bit bigger and suitable for human beings' fat fingers if it's going to be touch interfaces. And, you know, the GP surgery or machining, you know, switch machine on, off, all that kind of stuff in a production line where you might be wearing gloves, that's the kind of use case for things like this I see. It's not very fine-grained movement that you'd have. Like, I, I, iPads are good, but they're not mouse or pencil good. You know what I mean? So I, I think that user interface has to be slightly different. It's not, And that's why you don't want 4K would be my suggestion because it's everything's probably a bit too small, really, on something this size, particularly in a 24-inch screen. If it was a bigger screen, you might get away with it. Like the fabled massive you know, 20-inch iPad they've talked about for years where it's probably big enough. But you're into an odd position in this where I think for like artists and things like that who would want to potentially use a touchscreen as part of it, it's not fine-grained enough. But then... The cost on a 4K monitor at this sort of size for that sort of detail with those sort of user interfaces, I don't think that equation adds up. And I'm with you. If this is a cheap monitor, and by cheap, under $300, yeah, I get it. But this is a $520 monitor, and I don't think the economics are right. I'm not sure who this is for. Yeah, I think this is a product that's probably not going to sell that well, to be honest. Like, Like you say, it's not clear who the market is. You know, they might release the most incredible thing, so it's a dual screen for your iPad, so you can touch here, touch there, and, you know, it works well. Maybe there is a case for that. I don't think Apple are releasing that anytime soon, though. No, I can't see Apple doing that at all. No. And if you're a Microsoft Studio, like yes, or was it Microsoft Surface? I forget which it was now. The one that you can fold down uh, into. That, you've already got that built into it, unless you're going to extend your desktop with another touch thing. Don't get it. Yeah, so I think this is a struggled, a struggling product before it's even really come out the gates. Yep, agree. And then the other one, and I put this in just for giggles as much as anything, is a Samsung 57-inch dual UHD gaming monitor. So this is a 57-inch Odyssey Neo G9, which costs $2,499 when it releases in October, and it's equivalent to 32-inch 4K displays. Are you getting any more interest in this one? This one, definitely. I don't know why. I don't like the aesthetic of it that much. It's a bit... I don't I don't know what to call the aesthetic. It reminds me a little bit of, like, something out of Wally, maybe, like the spaceship. But I quite like the idea of this. So I think you said it's, what, 57-inch. So it's like having two 32-inch 4K screens next to each other. This gets my, my tick. I've got two monitors on my desk at the moment. It does HDMI 2.1, which is generally, I think, what you need if you want to do all, all the good stuff. It's got DisplayPort on it. It's got USB Hub on it, USB-C that is. But it does picture by picture and picture in picture. Whereas picture by picture is where you could literally treat them as two separate monitors, but it's one one space. To me, that's quite exciting. Like now I've got you here on my on my Mac, but I've got another screen over here with, with say, a games console on it or something. And it's like, well, actually, you could have that all in one. Or I could have my Mac on one and my iPad on the other or, or whatever it may be. I'm quite interested in this. I think it looks cool and it would be a super clean desk. I don't know if I like the curve on it, though. That would be the thing I'm not sure about. 
So, looking as someone who has a curve monitor on my desk that I'm talking to you on right now, I've really quite got used to having a curve monitor. I quite like it. You don't need to turn your head so far to be able to see the edges of the screen, which is the, the trick of a curve. Bad idea in televisions. Never bring it back to television manufacturers. But for monitors, it works really well. And the degree of curvature, it, it they say it mirrors the curve on your eyeball, so it's pretty much what you did. So if you had a bunch of the ones I've got, and I stacked them around me, it would form a perfect 360 in sort of a human being's sort of line of vision. That's the idea that they are. You'd need less of them in a 57-inch screen than you would in my 32-inch screen, I think. That this really appeals to me as well, other than it's ridiculously comically big. A 57-inch monitor is is a lot of desk, desk space needed for something like that. You know, it's almost the size of the big TV I've got in the living room or the one over my shoulder here. But the specs are really good. It's mini-LED. It's got a refresh rate of 240 hertz. That's really impressive. That is impressive well, that, for a 4K screen. For a 4K screen, our televisions, we, we like our 120 hertz on there. That's that's not bad. So 240 hertz on something like this is good. It's got quite a decent amount of brightness, 420 nits typical, but up to HDR 1000, 1000 nits. Total resolution, 7680 by 2160. That's an impressive screen. I think it is impressive. I think this looks a good product. And I get that it's takes up a lot of desk space, but if you've got two reasonably big screens on your desk, say two 27s, this will probably fit all right. I, I don't know. I, I think this looks kind of cool. Um, I'd love to have a go on one of these. And it's where you kind of would like, I'd love a demo product of it and just to take everything off my desk, put it down and just try it. Because would it convince me to move over to a curved screen? I don't know, but I think it looks great. And it's it's not a cheap screen, but it's for the specs, I don't think it's badly priced, especially compared to the person with a studio display that was £1,500. I'm with you, and if you keep an eye on these things, the G, the, the original G9, and not this 57-inch one, was $2,000 when it came out, and dropped to 1000 in about eight months. So if you were patient, it actually become quite a much more affordable. I mean, it's not cheap. It's by no means cheap. But if it came in under the price of the screen you're, you're using now, I think that becomes quite a compelling thing. And it's worth seeking out. I'm not going to go and look it for the show notes now, but Marcus Brownlee did a review of the previous version of this, the smaller one. And there's lots of very nice little design features like Gaming's all about having light, flashy up lighty keyboards and all this kind of stuff. And this has, if you want it, it's got lighting things built into the back so you can get it to sync with your gaming as you go and the way Philips things do. You could have, if you're watching something in a blue background, it'll sort of beam blue around the, around, the, uh, around the screen as it goes. There's a little hangy hook on the back so you can just take your headphones off, your wireless headphones, and plonk it behind it to keep all the, all the clutter off your desk, all the rest of it. It's got a built-in KVM, so if you had a Mac and a Windows machine plugged into it, you only need one keyboard in your desk to switch between them. So I think it's a really well thought out product. Agreed. I I think it looks great. Like I say, I would love to see one of these in person. The problem is it's hard to do that these days because you don't often get these sorts of things in shops. You don't. Anyway, a nice little bit of desirable tech that we both quite fancy. And there you go. And it's from Samsung. We've done a bit of Samsung love recently. Yeah, no, definitely. They do do some good hardware, to be fair. Very true. Should we move on? Yep. So for those that may or may not know, there's a Mac app called Setup, and it's specifically a Mac app. That actually, there's a monthly subscription to it gives you access to lots of other apps, not a sponsor of the show. And they have come out and said that they are planning to launch an alternative app store for iOS in Europe. Well, as we know, the EU is planning to enforce the uh, allowing alternative app stores. So I just think this is a really bold move of Setup to say, yep, we're ready. You know, day one when the EU mandates that it's no longer just the Apple App Store, We'll be there supporting you with a bunch of other apps by subscription. 
Yeah, this looks great. Haven't they already mandated it, though? Was I right with that? November the 11th, it came into effect. It's going to happen, but Apple obviously haven't done anything yet, so they're ready to go. Brilliant. Okay. Well, this is going to be quite interesting to see how this hots up. I mean, I wonder whether it will make... What was our friends that took Apple to court over... Was it Fortnite? Epic. Epic. So it'll be interesting to see whether there's an Epic store and a Microsoft store. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see what where this goes. Or... Do you get just the big players? I don't. I I slightly wonder about you know the big players like say say a setup maybe a Valve possibly you know pro- people you'd trust to be able to have app stores on there. You'd have two or three in competition. Maybe the Android store. <laughs> you know seriously, may come along and do this kind of thing. And rather than everybody doing their own store, they all settle behind. Well, actually, they've got slightly preferential rates. The setup people, so we'll just bundle our thing in there for their monthly subscription of twelve quid or whatever it is and then our apps will get featured too just to stick it to apple as much as anything and then consumers will go oh but i can get a bunch of stuff for one monthly fee from there actually we're used to paying monthly fees for software now so why wouldn't we just do that they've got a bunch of games they've got the writing software i like they've got a, a, a maps app that i really like i'm just going to do that and i think at that sort of thing it becomes more compelling than just installing or sideloading a store for fortnite yeah, it's going to be interesting to see how it plays out. I'm surprised we haven't had a word from Apple on any of this because normally they get in front of the announcements. But obviously, set up have gone. We're doing it on Apple's platform, so yeah, it can be very interesting. And there was no news really about this at WWDC this year, so I was surprised by this. No, I'm quite, I'm quite excited to see what happens with this, really. And let's face it, most people will just stick to the App Store because it's what they're familiar with and what they know. But even a small percentage of the hundreds of millions of iOS users and iPadOS users are interested in some of this. That's a chunk of change. Yeah, that's true. Let's just keep an eye on it. It's something to report on in the future. Definitely. Moving on. iPhone uh, 14 and 14 Pro owners uh, complain about battery capacity. Now, this is interesting. I've got an iPhone 14 Pro. I think I got it the day it came out. And I've lost 10% of my battery capacity. So you can look in settings, scroll down to battery, go into battery health, and then it will tell you what your maximum capacity is. And mine is 90% of what the battery was when it shipped. So I've had it a year. I've used it most days. Obviously, I've been running the beaters on it. I've charged it every night. So I'm in the same boat that it's dropped, but I can't remember what it dropped like in my previous phone, which was an iPhone 12 Pro Max. What's your maximum battery capacity? Do you you know the answer? Well, I'll give you a vague answer because I can't look at my phone because it's filming me at the moment. But I did look when I was in Canada, actually, because I thought, I haven't looked at this in a while. And I think it's 89%, and that's two and a bit years old at this point. Yeah, so your phone is a year, nearly a year older than mine, nearly two years, I'd say, and you've lost one more percent off your battery than I have. That's quite interesting. Now, you do have the Pro Max, and it's got, probably got a different battery in it because it's a different generation, but interesting that mine's losing it quicker than yours. So it feels like there is a bit of smoke by this fire. Yeah, that does sound slightly worrying, actually. It's not a thing you want to happen to your device, is it? Just because you're so reliant on your phone, you so get used to what its normal charge and discharge cycle is based on your normal working day that you're going to notice that kind of sort of difference. Hang on, this is a bit flatter than it would normally be, and I haven't done anything different. And battery health is so important you know, on a device like this. That Yeah, that is interesting. I wonder if it's the always on screen or is it people like me that use MagSafe a lot? Or, you know, I just it'll be interesting to see what all the metrics are around this one. 
Yeah, you get a lot of people who will religiously follow the, I'll charge it up and as soon as it's charged I'll unplug it again and I'll let it discharge, you know, which is the old school way of managing batteries before the software managed it itself. But I do often think, like if I'm on a long drive, I was on a long drive twice, you know, in the last four days, back and forth to Scotland, and the car is sitting on the Qi charger in the Tesla continuously for that period, even if I'm not really using it. So it's just sitting there in quite a warm environment with the MagSafe thing on, you know, and that can't be good for these devices. I think you meant to say the phone is sitting there on the Qi charger, not the car is sitting on the Qi charger. I mean, maybe that would be nice. That will come one day. I'm sure you just park on your drive and it and it charges through the the floor. Maybe, yeah. No, it's the same in my car, and I do find with running CarPlay and Qi charging, the phone does get warm. So, be, like I say, it'd be interesting to know. But you shouldn't need to unplug your phone anymore to protect the battery because it manages it a lot a lot for yourself especially overnight it learns from your habits so if you get up in the middle of the night and look at your phone it's like oh why is it not charged and it's like well it, it tops up the charge just before you get up so it does look at all of all of that piece to to be more intelligent around how it does it yeah well it's, again definitely a story to keep an eye on isn't it yeah i'd be curious to know whether actually anything tangible comes out of this i will be keeping an eye on it will it make me upgrade probably not but I'm more interested in what features come on a new phone. But it is a factor, obviously, and do you upgrade this year or in two years' time? Yeah. Next up, so I put this in, I need to put this follow-up, so I just briefly mentioned that Excel is getting Python support because obviously you and I talked about the Excel Championships a few weeks ago, which actually I thought was actually quite interesting as a person that consumes quite a lot of spreadsheets. I'm no good at writing them, but it's interesting they are building out Excel for Python, which makes sense. I think Python's a really prevalent language. It's very popular. It is probably a good way for Microsoft to go. I'd be curious to know whether they do it on the iPad versions and the web versions, or is it just a Windows thing? But they do seem to be getting their apps more in parity with each other now. So, yeah, I think it's interesting, but probably something I wouldn't use. Yeah, something I need to think about a little bit harder. I do use Python a lot in the day-to-day job, you know, for doing visualizations on data. And it's a very flexible tool, Python. I kind of need to get my head around how that actually works in an Excel spreadsheet. Some of the examples they give in the Verge article here are you can use particular libraries to draw plots and all the rest of it, which is great. Python has amazing graphing abilities through these other libraries like like Seaborn. Excel's graphing libraries are okay, and I know lots of data scientists that will actually import to Excel and draw them there as they're beginning and then as they get better they'd never go near Excel again. So I'm not sure what the dividing line is here. Have Microsoft realized that Python is a very powerful language for stuff like this, for crunching data, for cleaning it, for drawing, you know, like for drawing graphs and all the rest of it. But don't they want you to use Excel? Is this like Noddy's guide to Python? I, it seems like a very confused product to me. If you're good at Python, you're not opening Excel. Is what I'm getting at. If you're learning Python, maybe, but then you're probably just going to do the standard Excel functions first. So I'm a bit lost, really, as to what this is serving. I can kind of see it, I think, because for me, somebody, you know, UK, UK corporate company, we give people Excel. We've probably got people that want to do more with data, but they, we don't give them access to take that data out of Excel and put it into another another program or on, onto a web service where they could maybe play with it. So maybe for people, in, especially in the corporate space, this is a way of giving more powerful access to something that, that they wouldn't normally support, if that makes sense. So it's probably a way... And maybe Microsoft bit bit behind it, but I think it's a way of, you know, giving your your people that analyze your data that maybe aren't programmers or don't have access to to systems to have the data in in a code way. It's a way of bridging that gap, if that makes sense. 
I don't know. It's going to be interesting to see actually what the adoption rate's like. Yeah, like I say, I'm I'm slightly skeptical. I mean, well done. I think Python is an incredibly powerful thing that you can do an awful lot with. I don't think the average Excel user does that, though. They you know they they drag a box around a column and say sum that, please, and give me that. They don't need particularly standard deviations. They don't need p-values and statistical tests on things like we do in on the data science world. And most of the functions that you're going to want to do in Excel are served perfectly well within Excel. It's just it feels a bit halfway house, and I don't really get it. Maybe it's part of the embrace extend thing that we talked about last week. I don't know. On the other hand, I quite applaud giving Excel users the power to be able to do something a bit more significant with the data that's in there using a tool like Python. Why Python and not R? You know, why not Julia? Why not all these other you know modeling languages? I suppose Python's the easiest one to learn, but interesting. Yeah, interesting. It'll be interesting. Will they actually move over to it and retire some of their old older functions over time? Who knows? Fair enough. You have a story from John Gruber for us next. Just a brief one. This caught my eye as we've talked about before. Twitter's been renamed to X. And I love that everywhere people write X brackets formerly Twitter. And apparently the the changes meant it's fallen at, you know, off the app store, top downloads for on both Google and, and Google and Android's apologies, Android and, and iOS. So interesting that their whole rebrand just doesn't seem to have done anything for them and yet they've not really released any new features. It all seems a bit strange i guess is the right word and unneeded what they've just got they've lost all that twitter cachet in i don't know in two weeks it's in it seems very strange to me i've never seen a brand plummet in recognizability deliberately as quickly you know there's brands people follow follow it with for whatever reason over the years and they'll gradually sink and they'll vanish and you know they might get bought by somebody else and the logo will go away it's like an act of self-harm, this, to purposely go and name your, your, your thing something else. And it, it, from this article by Gruber, when he looked at the App Store charts, Threads was at number two, and the X app was at 51. And you think, what? It's bonkers, and, isn't it? And I, I've, I've been, we were talking before the show, I've been at an event today where some of our students and interns have been presenting things. And occasionally one of them would say, you can look this up on Twitter, I mean X. It's just not going to permeate the public consciousness in the same way that Twitter has. It, you know, it was such a brand, such an iconic brand. The color, the bird, the name. Twitter tweets done. X posts, whatever it is. I don't know. Well, you, Apologies if you can hear my dog, by the way. You, you'd have the Twitter logo on Vans. You'd have it on, you know, windows, restaurants, menus. You'd see it on the news. You know, somebody's Twitter handle, people knew what it meant. Whereas I think everybody's just really confused by it all. Yeah, very strange. But I was I just including it in there for just just for completeness of. Are we going to be talking about X in a year? It doesn't feel like at this point. I'll just say on my long drive to and from, I saw at least two vans where they painted over or taped over the Twitter part of the thing. They had the the Facebook thing, they had the Instagram thing, and then it was clearly tape over something else. I thought that's interesting. Mm, yeah, time will tell, I guess. Time will tell. Next up, I've just put a link in because I thought this was interesting. There is talk about Apple changing how watch bands work and that we may not keep the same connector that we've had for the last nine years or so. And it'd be interesting if they, A, they change the connector and make it smaller, you know, where the watch bands slide in, which I think was a fantastic design and has lasted really well. I don't think we've ever really seen anybody complain about any f- fragility or anything like that. It seems a very good connector and easy to use. But this new version they're talking about might know what colour your watch band is. And I kind of thought it sounds like MagSafe, but for bands, you know, when you put your case on your phone, it knows it's a red, red case or a pink case or whatever it may be. It'd be quite cool that you 
put the watch band on and actually your watch face will change to match the band. I thought, that's quite clever. And using that kind of technology between the hardware and the software. So I, I quite like the sound of it. And it, it seems like a, now they've said it out loud, it's like, actually, it seems like a no-brainer. They're doing it on the phones with MagSafe. Why wouldn't we have MagBands, for example, or whatever it may be? So it looks quite cool. Yeah, I agree. It's a, it's a cool concept. You slide the thing and then you get a, a, band, you know, a, fi- a watch face to match the band that you're wearing. People spend quite a lot of time, well, some people spend quite a lot of time customizing the face on their watch and then choosing maybe the band to go with it or they've got the orange band they've worn all their lives or whatever it is since they've had, as long as they've had the device. I don't know if they might be annoyed. You, cl- you snap in something new to it and it changes the design you've got because I find that the colored faces are a bit more limited in the complications and things that you can show. So that's a thought. No, I agree. And it'll be interesting to see how Apple message it. But I kind of like the idea where, you know, I'm going to, like with focus modes, you know, I'm going to put my work focus mode come on from eight, eight till six. So I could have my work band on and it puts my work watch face on and then I'm going to take that off and I'm going to put on my going out one or something. I don't know. It'd be interesting to see how it goes. The bit about it matching your clothes I find slightly more interesting. Is that a sensor? What You know, if I'm wearing a really loud shirt and a really dark suit, what does it pick? Hmm? It would be interesting to find out. It would be interesting to find out, I guess. Anyway, interesting story and, and a cool use of technology. I do agree. Yeah, I love all that. I do like. I quite like it. Like I said, with the MagSafe charges, that it knows what. Oh, sorry, not the charges. The the cases. It knows what color it is. It's quite a nice little idea, and I'd like to see more more of that. I think I think there's some clever stuff Apple could do there. Fair enough. Anything else in news? No, I think we're done. It's been a quiet week. It has been a very quiet week, but we're we're gradually ramping up towards a new device release, aren't we? Yeah, it feels like they call it Techtober often, don't they? If, you know, there's be some announcements usually in September and then they get all the tech end of September going into October. So it does feel like, you know, we're going to come out of this hiatus and boom, you know, it's going to be Apple Watch event. Oh, sorry, Apple iPhone event before we know it. Perfect. Okay, should we do some media? Let's do it. So we've got a bit of a list this week, actually. At least I've got a bit of a list. But because I wasn't in the house and I was traveling and I found myself with little, odd little bits of downtime here and there, I finally went back and watched Guardians of the Galaxy 3. I don't think you've seen the Guardians of the Galaxy films, have you? I tried to watch the first one and it didn't really work. I just don't know. And I know you loved the first one. I'm fairly confident I've said that right. But I just, I don't know. It just didn't really stick with me. And my kids aren't really into Marvel. And I think if my children were into it, I would sit and watch it with them because I love watching a film with the children. So it didn't stick on so I, don't, I haven't seen one, two or three. Fair enough. I like them. They're very quirky. They're not your usual superhero nonsense type movie. Well, they are nonsense movies, but they're very well done. The director's got a great aesthetic. It's very much based on a TV show from years ago. It's got that sort of feel, feel to a thing called Farscape, which I've talked about on this show before. And I like that sort of feel to it. So Guardians 1 was a great film. Guardians 2 was not a great film, although it did have Kurt Russell in it, which helps most films, let's face it. And then Guardians 3 had had to deal with not only the two previous films that came along, but also had to deal with what happened outside of that universe. So it had to, you know, what happened in the Avengers Endgame and all the rest of it as part of that too. So it's it's just a really good movie. It's fun, it's well done, and there's all sorts of hints to 2001 and other films in there. It was good. And is it all on Disney Plus? I'm assuming it is because they love Marvel. Yes, it's all on Disney Plus. So I think you should give Guardians another go. It's like freaky Star Wars. It's quite well done. You don't need to have seen any other Marvel stuff. It just stands in its own feet, really. Great music. I think you'd give it another chance. Is it suitable for a 10-year-old? Yeah, I think it probably is. Okay. 
and maybe I'll try it with with one of my kids and see if I if I can get them into it, then that will help to watch the trilogy. And if nothing else, I bet they like the music. Yeah, probably. I think I've seen the bit I've seen the music was quite cool. Yeah, it's well done. James Gunn is worth a look, definitely. Moving on, and in a completely different tack, I talked about having watched Sharp a couple of months ago. Also on ICVX's Hornblower. You could think of Hornblower as nautical Sharp, basically. He's a captain, he goes to sea, he does sort of seafaring things during the Napoleonic Wars. What's a lot of fun that is, it's got Ewan Griffith in it, uh, a whole bunch of actors you'll recognise being dastardly or dashing, depending on how it goes. Bit of a bodice ripper, I think, as a Downton Abbey fan, you'd probably appreciate bits of it too. Give it a go, it's free on ITVX. Oh, okay. That's good that it's free. There's a lot of good free content out there, to be fair. I think I was looking through the Channel 4 app, and actually they've got quite a few films on there. I was like, actually, I should check in on what films they have, because they do change from time to time. So, point noted, whether I get time to watch it is another question, but I will see what I can do. That's good. Stick it on in the background. I think you'd enjoy it. It's 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 quite, you know, it, it's quite entertaining. It romps along. The, the What would be a prolonged naval battle is done in about 30 seconds in it, but that's fine. It's a TV budget there's only so much they can do and there's some great model work in there i mean it predates cgi by quite a bit but they do a really good job with it okay well might might check that one out also on disney plus this week has just came out this week actually is ahsoka which i'm going to struggle slightly to recommend i have watched the first episode and a half i actually stopped watching it to come and podcast with you just while i was waiting to see what was going on so i got 10 minutes of the second episode still to go hard recommend in the sense that it's quite well done, it's all shiny, it's got the Star Wars look and feel to it, but frankly that's becoming a bit passe these days. You kind of expect it, that a Disney a Disney action live action thing is going to have this particular look. They're going to use the volume thing, so it looks like they're actually acting in a real place. Very like The Mandalorian, it's got that sort of same sort of feel to it. Nothing's very real, lots of green screen, use the volume thing and on you go. The story's a bit derivative. If you haven't seen... The Star Wars Rebels cartoons from years ago, you won't have a clue what's going on, and I bet very few people have. Don't think it's going to do very well, despite it being perfectly serviceable. Is that a nice enough word? I think it might be. Yeah, if you haven't seen the Rebels cartoons, I don't think I'd bother. I think you could safely skip it. I mean, I'm vaguely enjoying it, but it's certainly not must-see. Yeah, I'm struggling with all the Disney... Star Wars, Marvel content to watch because there's just so much of it now. I think that's we had years of drought and now we've got years of, for me, too much. Interestingly, I did know this came out today because I was talking to an 11 year old at the park today and he was telling me all about it and he was excited to go and watch it. So I hope as an 11 year old, he's not disappointed when he gets to watch it. Well, as a 49 year old, I was quite disappointed. I mean, it, I, and I like Star Wars. I'm a child of the Star Wars age, very much so. So more Star Wars has always been good for me. I slightly off off topic. All those these discussions on other podcasts about the potential Apple Disney purchase thing, all of them say that this is why Apple would buy Disney primarily. Some of them think that they should keep the theme park, God forbid. But this is why you'd want a Disney because of all the IP related to Marvel and Star Wars and Rages of the Lost Ark and all these things, all these properties they have. And then you just keep Apple TV Plus as like the HBO Max brand within that. And that's got a certain amount of sense to me. But I don't know that newer Disney content is actually any good. <laughs> you know, it's really rather average. And if that trend continues where, you know, The Mandalorian was very, very good and seems to be going over a hump and you do get the odd good show like Andor that I've talked about here. But most of the MCU TV shows haven't been very good. They've been distinctly average. The films are good. The Star Wars films are good. 
you're sort of hitting the bumps of, of that IP quite quickly, with the exception of Guardians of the Galaxy that I've just talked about. So I, I wonder how big a value proposition that is. Obviously, Mickey Mouse is hugely valuable IP, but I think they're struggling a little bit on this whole quality-quantity divide for me. Yeah, and I think that if you're buying Disney, their back catalogue is a factor, but it's their ongoing IP. Surely it's not the current shows they're doing what they're doing they'll be over by the time the deal went through it's got to be for all the future ip and the, the future prospects and the cachet of the brands and and all the assets it'd be weird apple owning the star wars brand for example in my mind but it'd be very interesting to see well what would they do with theme parks would they you know carve those out and license them to, to somebody else to run who knows i think disney has is too big and too much baggage for somebody to buy it like that but it'll be curious to see whether anything does come to fruition on it i mean apple it's not quite a pocket change for apple but they could they could afford to buy i don't know 15 or 16 disney's let's not kid ourselves about the, the different value that disney and apple and amazon and you know the tech giants have compared to these traditional media companies I'm with you in the sense that Disney isn't just the IP of Mickey Mouse or Goofy or Marvel these days or, or everything else. And I think Upgradable have done a far better job than you and I ever could on this. But you know, listening to them talk about how important the theme parks are to Disney, because you 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 make the thing, you sing the song about the thing, you know, you 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 market the thing to death, and then people come and experience it as children in the theme parks. That sort of virtuous circle, I can kind of see the point of. Cruises, I don't. And every time somebody says cruises, I think of succession. So I think they should, if, if it does happen, they need to divest themselves of cruises as, as fast as humanly possible. But there are lots of bits to the Disney brand that I think would fit quite well with Apple. But it's just not really their style to make such a big acquisition. And as has also been said, Apple today isn't the Apple of five and certainly not the Apple of 10 years ago. So I don't think we can presuppose that it's just not going to happen because it's their style. It's a different company and they have different priorities. And this would be such a head start into having a huge back catalogue of stuff. Even if some of it's not very good, they could sort of water it down as a different brand. And like you say, cultivate the true IP to build something stronger with a lot of the creative minds they have got. If nothing else, it buys them lots of studio place, space and creative people when they come back off strike, to help them build more and more of these properties. So I'm a bit more on the fence about it than I was last week, I think. Yeah, I'm, I'm confused, but I just I think it's too much, too big and too much of a distraction for Apple. That'd be my view, but we have to keep an eye on it. Fair enough. I've got one word on hijack. I've now finished it. I kind of see what you were saying about the CGI being a bit ropey at the end. Ooh. Is it a spoiler? It's probably a spoiler. Yeah, that last sequence of things happening was not very realistic at all and some very bad cgi and also idris just does get to wander around a lot doesn't he yeah that that was it and i, I was talking to a colleague of mine who said oh, have you seen it? it's really good and I, I then reiterated well do you not think it's a bit odd that the cgi was questionable at best and then b didn't he just get to walk around a lot it just it, i don't know for me there were two things that just really spoiled it and i think if they just tightened it all up a little bit could have just been so much better. At the same time, it was quite compelling. And I liked that it was the same length as a flight from Dubai to London. I thought that was quite well done. So I was fine with it. It built a bit of tension. It's a bit, it was a bit like a popcorn you know, thriller. Yeah. You, know, you, you could sit and go, and it was, it was perfectly digestible. Not a bad thing in any way. Bit of tension. You know, my daughter loved it to bits. So I, I'm, I was okay with it. 
For me, it's super easy watch. Nice to have one in the background. And, and I've gone to that before. I've gone to something like a foundation or a silo where I know I need to really concentrate and be, be fully on it. So sometimes you just want, want that kind of entertainment. And it was good for that kind of entertainment. But I just think they could have just done a little bit more with the premise of it. That was all. Fair enough. I've got a couple of things in. Just briefly, I've had a bit of a tear on Netflix before I lose it in two days' time. And I watched The Founder. Have you ever seen The Founder? It's got my This is a this McDonald's, right? How they how they founded McDonald's and Michael Keaton's in it. He's fantastic. And it's all about the McDonald's brothers. Well, they are a side part to it, if I'm honest. It's all about this character, Roy Crock, who basically meets the McDonald's brothers, loves it, and then runs off and franchises it. It's really well done. Genuinely really enjoyed it. Great to know a bit of history of McDonald's, obviously such a synonymous brand now. But yeah, thoroughly enjoyed it. Really good. And it's, it's from about 2016, so, so it's not a new film. But 100% would recommend it if it, if you like these kind of real life based films. Obviously, it's going to be some creativity in there, I guess, with the storylines. But I loved it, and yeah, I can't say enough about it. Really well filmed. Great. I, I would like. I haven't actually seen it. I know about it. I would like to watch it. So that's one of my list. Yeah, definitely recommend, and it's on Netflix if you have that. Next up, I also watched Banker Dave because this this came up on Netflix around the same as the founder. I thought, what is Banker Dave? I'd heard a little bit about it. It's from about twelve years ago here in the UK. Basically, a businessman from Yorkshire loans people some money out of his own pocket. You know, he sells minibuses. He's got a great business. He's a multimillionaire, and then he goes, well, actually, no, I'm going to try and set up a bank. And he thinks he won't be able to do it. And he wants the the board to tell him, well, why can't I set up a bank? What's, what's stopping me? Because it's just all the all the big banks that are established here in the UK are banks. And there's not been any new banks for circa 150 years. It's a great film. Really well done. And it's got, and forgive me, I can't remember the gentleman's name, a guy that was in, one, in the James Bond films in it. It's got a great cast. Not many, for me, famous actors. You will probably recognise more than I will. But just really well done. And... For me, quite a tight storyline based on a true story. And I thought they told told the narrative really well, really well shot. Just, yeah, I thought it was a great film. And I think there was a TV series on this on Channel 4 here in the UK back when this was all going through, which I've not seen. But yeah, two, two recommends on two real-life business films, which I quite enjoy that kind of a film. Fair enough. Sounds, both sound good to me. Well, that's your homework sorted. There we are. Is it Rory Kinnear? Is that who you're thinking of as the main star? Yeah, he was very good. Really, really enjoyed I, him, the, the, the way he portrayed the character. And then they showed you some photos at the end of the real Dave. And it was, yeah, it, he was very well matched, I thought. Fair enough. I will look out for at least one of those films and try and do a bit of homework next week. Cool. Should we move on to games? Quick game section. So I haven't had an awful lot of chance to play many games. I did have a go at Angry Birds remastered on my phone just because it was there. And yep, yeah, it's still Angry Birds. Yep, I don't like it very much. And yep, I deleted it almost straight away. But yeah, it works and it looks a bit prettier than it used to. I used to like Andrew, Angry Birds a little bit, but I soon grew out of love with it, I think. And I think they just over-milked it. Yeah, as soon as they made the film, well, actually a long time before they made the film, it was all over for me. Agreed. So that was one thing. The thing that really caught my eye this week, and I'm not going to buy one, is my very first computer gaming slash device ever was an Atari 2600, which was a console in the very early 80s might have been like 81 i want to say i wasn't very old when we got it in the house i remember my father coming back with this wood effect plastic thing and space invaders on on the uh, the console and i played that thing to death and it had 99 different variants of space invaders most of which were different speeds and different colors but i was happier than anything to have that 
and another game called Combat. And now you can buy a replica 2600 to go with all the replica 2600 cartridges. And that's really cool. I'm never going to pony up the money for this though because I will do them in some sort of retro gaming you know, emulator or something like that. But I think it's really cool that stuff like this exists. Uh, I agree. I think that joystick looks amazing. I've got quite fond memories. We used to have some of those joysticks. We did have an Atari 2600 when I was younger. I think this looks, looks awesome to me. And I would love to have a go on one. But the problem I find with the really old games, as much as I quite like a bit of nostalgia, they're just too old, if you know what I mean. And they're, they're just a novelty for a, a bit of fun. But no, it looks amazing. I think I yeah, really like what they've done with it. And like I said, the joystick looks fantastic. The joystick is an iconic piece of design. Square, red button in the top left-hand corner, and, you know, a joystick. I broke five or six of those things. They would just go. The little micro-switches, if you took them apart, and I took a few apart, they had little plastic nubbins underneath them to sort of detect how much the, the joystick waggled in one direction or the other, so it was sort of in the reverse, and they'd just snap off. So they hadn't the tolerances of it weren't very good when it, when it was built. Possibly deliberately so, because you could buy more joysticks and the joysticks weren't, they weren't the, the cheapest things in the world. But it is an iconic piece of hardware. Yeah, and I, th- I think the whole thing they've done, I've just scrolled through the webpage a little bit, the, the branding, the box, everything, they've, it, it just looks so well designed and presented. It just, yeah, fantastic. Yeah, I mean, they've got all the graphics right for that era with the font right for the 2600. They've even got the little, you can buy the accessories, the sort of driving pad versions of the joystick accelerometer potentiometers whatever they were that were inside of that for games like night driver that were ridiculous the car didn't move the road did and you just went up so yeah it's only shipping to the united states for all you non-united states listeners out there yeah well looking at it and when they talk about the specs of the device it's charges with USB-C and it does hdmi i almost guarantee there's a raspberry pi inside of this thing if you took it apart, it's just a dressed-up Raspberry Pi with using the outputs for that, which is what they did with the Amiga replica, which is what they did with the NES replica. All these things are based on Raspberry Pis fundamentally, and this will be too. I mean, what an amazing thing for the Raspberry Pi. You can actually just wrap it in something else, put a decent emulator on it, and punt it out the door. But I agree with you. I think the design and everything is actually, this is a bit special. Yeah, it looks awesome, doesn't it? And I think Lego did one of these, didn't they, as well? So if you do like the Atari 2600, you can get by a Lego version. You can. Moving on, Command & Conquer, which Chris has talked about his love for repeatedly, is getting another mobile game. I had a mobile game back in the day, it wasn't very good, none of us played it, but I saw this and I thought of you, Chris, so do you have any thoughts about this? I do, I haven't played the other one, and it hasn't been updated in four years, and I struggle with anything that EA have bought, because for me, EA are not a good custodian of properties, if I'm honest, I think... Disney have tried to be a good custodian of all the properties that we've discussed, and I think they're doing a very good job. EA ended up buying lots of companies back in the late 90s, like Bullfrog, like Westwood that produced Command & Conquer. For me, the series just didn't go where I wanted them to go. So I will take a look at it, but I'm very sceptical. I'd like to see them do a Command & Conquer for the PC with a mouse and a keyboard, please, not a mobile device. And after what they did with Apex Legends Mobile, which I talked about repeatedly on this podcast, was a terrific game, was brilliantly reviewed, had people playing it, they axed it almost straight away. So I'm with you. I don't think they've got a great track record, track record here. No, not at all. They've sadly ruined a lot of properties. So ugh, let's move on. So I put yeah, this one in there. Sony's finally released when they, well, they finally announced when they're going to release what they call in their PlayStation Portal. 
So this is a $200 device and basically it's a little handheld and you can play your PS5 as long as you're on the same Wi-Fi network. So you can have a, so say for me in my shed, I could connect to my PS5 in the house and have it play it on a, on a much smaller screen on a little handheld device. It's interesting, but it's a very niche product for me. I mean, at $200, might as well go and buy another PlayStation at this point because surely the PS5 Slim, you know, there's talk of that coming out at some point. So I thought it seemed quite expensive for the limited use case that it is. It's got 1080p screen, it will do 60 frames per second. What do you think? Yeah, I don't get it. I thought the PS Vita, when, it, when they released a handheld version of that, which was a true console by in and of itself, was a really good thing. Agreed, I, I had one of those. I, I don't understand this product at all. I think it's going to dive abominably, despite the quite nice-looking specs on it. I have no use case for this. Buy another PlayStation or buy a Steam Deck. Or walk into the other room. Yeah. It, I don't know if you've tried the in-home streaming of the PlayStation, but it doesn't work very well. I've not tried it. I think, if I, for me, if I want to play the PlayStation, I want to sit down in front of a big telly, if I'm honest. And that's why I've got one PlayStation on the biggest telly. And I can really get into it. I don't play a huge amount on it, but for me, it's more of a treat. Whereas I think this would erode the experience a little bit. So I did get a chance to play a little bit of Battlefield 2142 yesterday. Just a little bit on the PlayStation, which I haven't played in ages. And that game looks fantastic. It was free on you know whatever one of the monthly deals that came along. It's a AAA game. It's got amazing sound. It's now patched to such a level where it's actually playable. I just had a whale of a time for about 45 minutes on my big 65-inch TV with really rapid response on my controller at 120 hertz. How do you replicate that experience on a streamed-through-the-air rubbish device? And I know I've gone etherneted PlayStation to etherneted Mac or PC. I forget what I was on at the time. And it was laggy and crap. So I'm not in the market for this, and I don't know who is. Yeah, it's too much money. Like I say, I think if it was $100, maybe it's a bit more compelling as a, as a bolt-on, but I just think it's too much money for the for what it is and it's going to degrade the experience. Yep. That's that then. Main show? Main show. So we've got so, a couple of minor topics. I think we've got the iMac at 25. So the iMac is 25 years old. So we've talked about our original Macs back, well, way back in our first episode and I think we did a little retrospective when we are talking about the App Store, but I can say that I had the second generation of iMac. I didn't have the original Bondi Blue one. We had a grapefruit, I want to say the purple one, which was the second generation G3 iMac with a, with a CD drive, not a DVD burner, it a CD drive. So that is still the original iconic iMac Mac shape, which is like translucent plastic. It's a deep CRT screen. It's a, what, a 14 inch monitor, I think it was, and obviously had a colorful keyboard and a pucky, a, 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 a ice hockey puck mouse. I'm sorry, I'm struggling with my words there, which is a little round mouse, which was the iconic one. I never owned one of them, but what a, an amazing device. And that really obviously set Apple on its transition to where we've ended up today of getting away from beige boxes and being about design and bringing software and hardware together. It was a fantastic device, wasn't it? It was a great device, and I think I said back when we did that original show, it's not the first Mac I used. The first Mac I used was one of the Pizza Box performers, which didn't really stick with me, but it was good enough that I thought these are interesting devices. So when I saw the advert for the iMac and we sort of just were deciding what computer to buy next, I thought, yeah, that's 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 compelling. I'm going to go for that. And what a together device. After years of putting bits of PCs together and plugging in this and plugging in that, literally, power cord in the back of the thing, mouse into the side of the thing 
and then sorry keyboard on the side of the thing and then mouse into the keyboard done turned it on off you went I mean, the internet came very quickly afterwards, but it had built on Wi-Fi, it had the CD thing, it had an Ethernet port if you needed that as well. And everything just ran really well on it. I was just blown away by how carefully curated and thought out it was. Did it have, um, well, I was going to just question whether it had Wi-Fi. I thought that might be a bit too early for Wi-Fi. But they used to, you could get one with a modem built in and things as well, couldn't you? And you could have dial-up and, and what have you. I thought they looked fantastic. Always wanted one, never had one. I then came along... And the second, uh, the iMac G4 was my first iMac. And I lovingly remember that thing. That was the white, iconic angle point. What they call the angle poise one because you could float the screen in front of you. And to be fair, I don't think Apple have ever beaten that way of positioning the screen because all screens since that one are very static and you can just tilt them back and forth. You can't put it exactly where you want it, whether it's just a screen or an iMac. And it's a bit of a shame, really, because I thought that was such a good feat of engineering it's a bit of a shame they lost that, what you call the angle poise piece, if, if that makes sense. I agree with you. That that Was that the second generation iMac? Yes, it was, because that's when we went to the LCD. And you could move the screen amazingly up and down without having to spend another £1,000 on the stand, not just tilt it back and forth. But, I mean, back to this original iMac, it was pretty much peak, te- peak technology for the time. The screen was bright enough. You know, it had all the bits and pieces that you needed with it to get on. And they iterated on that design really well. I mean, we went from the iMac... I don't remember that it ever got any bigger other than the eMac might have had a slightly bigger screen. But this original iMac, all they really did was they added DVD burners. Maybe I might have been wrong about the Wi-Fi. I think now I think about it, you were right. I had a modem built in so that you dialed up and you could buy a card later on to upgrade it to be to have Wi-Fi. You could turn it upside down and upgrade the RAM yourself. Not that the RAM was that big a deal back in the day. Also notable for having USB ports on it, which not a lot of devices, even PCs had at that point. That's a fair point, actually. It did come with USB as standard, and that's how the keyboard connected. And it sh- it shunned the floppy drive, and it was the first device at that time not to have a floppy drive, which was crazy and bold, but 100% what was needed to get rid of all the old connectors, move to a universal connector. And it seems odd today, saying Apple were the first one to go to a universal connector when we're we're waiting for them to do it on our on our phones. But they were pioneers, really, of pushing USB forwards, getting rid of the floppy drive and moving us on to that next step. Oh, yeah. I always wanted one of those. Yeah, great. it was a great device. It really was. I'm getting quite nostalgic thinking about it. You know, And we had that Mac. We had the Angle Poise one that you had as well. We didn't have an eMac, although I did encourage other people to go and buy them. And then when they went to the white ones, so white Perspec LCD ones, we skipped that generation too and went straight to the black and silver ones. So I did have the G5 one. So you had G3. We both had the G4, which was the ankle poise one. And then I was very lucky. I was fortunate to sell my G4 one. And for £40 more, I bought the G5 one, which was quite a different design. It was the first one where you had what we now call the metal foot that we've got on all the iMacs and on all of Apple's displays. And it had the computer was below the screen and behind the screen, if that makes sense. Had a DVD in the side, but you lost the angle poise piece. But you got a G5, a much faster chip. I think you, you start getting bigger screens and then that led the way then to Intel because they did then take those exact same case designs and pop Intel chips in them later on. And then we went to the black and silver that, that you mentioned. And then obviously very recently, the black and silver then became colorful as we went to Apple Silicon. So it's had quite a life, the iMac. I did wonder whether they would ever drop the eye now because Apple have largely dropped eyes and it, I don't get why they need to call it the Mac because I think that'd be a great way to go with it. You know, I've just got a Mac, it would make sense. Would they drop the IL5 one? I don't think they're ever going to do that. 
so why would they be Mac? I mean, it, the, amongst many of the products that brought the modern age of Apple in, the iMac is it. You know, the iMac and the iPod, if you got, forgot everything else they've done, are really what ushered the next generation of Apple that turned them into the company they are today. Yeah, true. I guess you're right. Maybe they, they're holding on to it for nostalgic, but I'm, I just expected them to drop it, I think, because everything is Apple this, Apple that, and it's probably a product they could do it on. I think iPad and iPhone are here to stay with the eyes until until they fade away. Yeah, I'm kind of with you. At the same time, I have a vivid memory of this iMac nearly making me cry when it reformatted my my BSC thesis dissertation into from American format to A4 or the other way around, I forget what. I try, I try not to remember the details of this, of my several hundred page dissertation and getting it wrong every time and my, the, the page breaks being wrong. And I, from that point, I vowed never to use Microsoft Word for anything significant again, which I've held on to. And yeah, sometimes you needed a slightly more powerful computer because it wasn't always the fastest thing in the world, but I have very fond memories of this device. Yeah, me too. I love, loved all of them. And it really got me going. Like the iMac G4 really got me into Apple and that, that there was no going back for me at that point. And they, those were the days when you had a desktop and a laptop, whereas life's changed a bit now. You just have the one device. But fantastic devices to get people in the door, I think. And really made computers accessible. I think less scary for people of these beige boxes and I've got to plug all these cables in. It was just you buy it, you plug it in and you're off to the races. Fantastic. Yeah. And what a great bit of design, you know. Just a well-packaged computer with what the parts they had available with a, an up-and-coming new designer called Johnny Ive who managed to package all this thing well. And look how it went on to influence certainly consumer electronic design for a long time. For a long time there, everything came with translucent plastic on it. Oh, it was huge, wasn't it? And it, I think for me it is a shame that we've lost the colourfulness in a way. Everything's silver and blacks. I know they've tried to bring it back with the more recent iMacs, but... Again, I think they've missed the mark slightly with it, but they've only done it on the one and not on any other lines. And I think we're all looking for a little bit of colour. Let's see what happens in the next 25 years of the iMac, eh? Do you think we still have iMacs in 25 years? I guess we'll see. Yeah, it's hard to, you know, it's hard to know, isn't it? Or we'll all be on Apple Vision and Mac OS will die. Will that happen? I hope not. I have very fond <laughs> memories of the Mac. I don't think it'd be where I am now were not for the Mac. So here's to the iMac. Well done for 25 years and look what all you've created. Agreed. Tell us about the Steam Deck. So I may have ordered myself a Steam Deck. I think we spoke about it briefly a few weeks ago. I ordered a refurbished one. So basically I could get the top of the range model for the price of the, the middle of the road model. It turned up very quickly. It said one to two weeks, but actually came within about five days. But I was on holiday. What a device. I don't think I was quite ready for how big this thing is it is much bigger than i thought and the case i don't know if yours came with this case but it comes with a lovely very well made case but it is gargantuan it is very well protected but it makes the thing about three times as big as what it should be and you have the same case as me so ordered it happy with the money i think the price point is very good i will say that and the refurbished process they do say that it might be slightly used or what have you and i must say my one looks box fresh you wouldn't know that it's refurbished at all like i say bigger than i'd anticipated but really enjoying it it's just got one usb-c port and a headphone port on it it's got some big fans in it that's one thing i have heard and i was a little disappointed that i've heard the fans a little more than i would like because obviously i'm used to my macbook and my ipad which are fanless or if my macbook's got them they're very they're, they're barely audible i would suggest but i actually really like what they've done with it love the big screen very high resolution. I don't even know what the resolution is on this thing anymore. 
if, if I'm honest. But I think it's really well done. And the way they've done SteamOS, I assume it's called SteamOS on it, which looks a lot like other operating systems, obviously straight into the Steam store. But it just works. I was off and running with it very quickly. And for somebody that barely uses Steam or other gaming services, I'm probably a good guinea pig because I don't really know what I'm doing. But the tutorials were good, just showing you what the buttons do. There are a lot of buttons on this, which I quite appreciate. I've also plugged it into my USB-C monitor. I've Bluetooth in the keyboard and the mouse. Super easy to get up and running. So I can play all the games I want. Now, not all the games I've been playing, they're quite old work on the the actual Steam Deck screen natively, but they work great on the monitors. So for me, this is ideal. I've got a portable computer I can take between the house and the and my shed, and I can just plug it into a keyboard and a mouse or USB or Bluetooth. It's fantastic. I love it. I think it's a really good device. And for the price point, I think it you get a lot for your money, I think, to be fair. I don't even know how fast it is. I'm assuming I won't be able to run all the latest games on it. But for me, that's not what I bought it for. I bought it to play a lot of older games. I wanted to go back and replay and some of the newer stuff coming out, but largely on the strategy space. But I think they've done a fantastic job. And I can easily see me taking this with me when I go away. Just pop it in my bag. It's bigger than the Switch, but there's a lot more games available for it. I am actually waiting for Steam to have a sale. I believe they've got a strategy sale coming next week which is right on my street because I want to pick up some new games. And I believe the Steam sales are very good. A lot of you and my friends have mentioned them. So I'm just waiting for that to come along. But dead pleased with it. I did have a bit of buyer's remorse of, should I have spent £450 on this device? Will I use it enough? But I think actually, no, I'm glad I've done it. It means I don't need to run a Windows PC, which I did have an old one, which was aging out. And I thought, actually, I can get rid of that now and have this much smaller device and use all the USB things that I've got around the house. So super pleased with it. Yeah, I think that's a fair assessment. The fans are occasionally loud and noisy, but at the end of the day, it's actually doing quite a lot in a small space, you know, and it's running a much more beefy processor and GPU than the Steam Deck has, than the the, the, the Switch has. Because let's face it, that's not up-to-date technology, particularly that's, a, that's in the Switch. So it's got to do a lot. And if you look at the flexibility of games that it can run, that's quite astounding that it does run games going back, you know, 15 plus years compared to really quite up-to-date stuff that it does. There is a, I think I mentioned this at the time, there's a particular smell to the fans that on the back and, and people sniff them when they're running. Don't get into that, but you know, they're, they're, if it's not on at the moment, you won't, you won't, you won't notice it. But I noticed there was a theme on Reddit for a while of people sniffing their Steam Deck fans, but let's, let's gloss over that. It is a large device. I think the case is quite well thought out in the sense that, you know, it's got a nice little carrying handle on the back. Obviously, the device itself fits in it in a particularly nice way. I was surprised to get one too that was quite as protective as it was. I wouldn't want to drop the thing. I quite appreciated the fact that it's got a bit of fabric in it. So when you put your Steam Deck in it, you can actually lift it up by the fabric so you don't actually need to touch the screen. So it's a very simple thing, but I sort of appreciate that. And it just feels like a sturdy thing that fits nicely into my into my, into my rucksack alongside my, 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 I forget what it's called, my side-by-side cable management system that I got and I talked about on the show. I'm with you on the operating system. It runs underneath it. It's actually running Arch Linux with a KDE desktop. So if you, you won't have gone there yet, but you can actually get into it and get into the Linux guts of the thing if you want. So if you start getting into emulators and you want to run some old C64 or Amiga games or something like that, it's very easy to get up and running with that, that side of things too. And then the games. Obviously, almost everything in your Steam library will work on it to a certain extent. You know, if it's very keyboard intensive, it's probably not the greatest idea to, to do that, like you say, unless you plug in a keyboard. And some of the 
text on some of the strategy games can be quite hard to read. If you run through the tutorial, did you find the little text magnifier? If you did want to magnify parts of the screen? Yeah, it's it's got all, all the affordances in, I think. So some of the games I'm playing, I am just playing them on a monitor with a keyboard and a mouse, which is great. But I love the way you can use it as a console. They've kind of taken the Switch to the next dimension, haven't they? You can use it handheld if you want. You can plug into your TV, you can plug into a monitor, you can Bluetooth in a keyboard or a mouse, or you can Bluetooth in, I've got a spare controller here that I've paired with it as well. So it really is a flexible device, which was for me was the appeal. It wasn't too expensive. I'm fairly confident they're going to keep it up to date for a period of time. I know I can install lots of different games on it and I can have different games for different contexts, I guess. I do like a point and click strategy game, so I can I can do plenty of that. But I, I can also use it in the shed or in the house and I haven't got a big laptop or a desktop. So for me, it's the right balance. And I don't think it's too bad. on the, Like I say, on the money side, it's it's reasonably priced, I think. It's the price of a an iPad, basically. like a, a, the, the entry level iPad is what this costs. And if it lasts me three years, which I think would be reasonable for them, what I will do with it, because I don't need the latest chips in, a, you know, in performance, I think it'll be a, a good buy for me. So yeah, super looking forward to it. And it means I can retire an old laptop that I had previously been using to just play a couple of games on every now and again. So I'm very happy about that. I bet the fans even loader on the old laptop. Yeah, and it's running an old version of Windows and, that, you know, I wanted to get off of that. So I just think it, it's really well done and fair play to Valve for doing it because I think they did a device before that you could put under your TV. Am I correct in saying that? But it didn't really go anywhere. Whereas this feels like the best, you know, medium in that it works for everything. And hopefully as more games come out, developers will be more respectful of it of supporting it but for me it doesn't matter whether the games i want support the device because i know i can just plug in a monitor or a keyboard or a mouse and it will work fine and you can remap all the buttons on a per game basis it just seems really well thought out for the way they've done. well i agree i agree with you and it does actually run very modern games you need to drop the screen resolution you might need to drop the refresh rate a bit but Baldur's gate 3 which is a massively well-reviewed game that came out two weeks ago i think you can run it on a steam deck so it will run the most up-to-date games as well as what's going on before. That is quite cool. And I love USB-C. I was only thinking today, I don't know why Apple brought MagSafe back at this point because I've not used it at all because I've got USB-C everywhere in the house and I know I've got chargers and so it's easy to keep it topped up. Worked fine with my TV on HDMI. I've already got some USB-C dongles that will allow HDMI or Ethernet and it all just worked. I think it's really well done. I think the OS is great. There were a couple of updates to install when I got it. I've got one with 512 storage on it, which is ideal for me, I think. So I'm looking forward to this sale next week because I haven't really bought any games yet because somebody told me there's a sale coming for strategy games. I was like, right, I will hold off and and do that next week. I did download Age of Empires 3 demo though so I'm keen to try that out it's going to be a bit more recent I believe Age of Empires 4 is very good too so something like that I want to do want to try out Fair enough that's good did you download Aperture Desk Job? I did I've had a brief go on it that was cool because it showed me how to use all the controllers and, and everything and I do like that it's a bit like Astro's Playground isn't it where they show you how it all works basically so I did have a go on it for about half an hour I thought it was good yeah, you finish it, you move it on. It's quite nice that it's set in the Portal universe, and it's worth trying Portal, I'd suggest, on, on the Steam Deck. You probably bought that back in the day, and that should work too. Yeah, I do, do have Portal for it, and I like that the, the Steam logo is, is the Portal logo kind of thing. I think that's that's quite a neat neat little tie in there. But no, I'm super impressed with it. I just think they've done a really nice job, and it's so easy to pick it up and start using it and understand how it works. Like You've got the Steam button dedicated on there. You've got all the different controllers. So would recommend if anybody's wanted a very casual gaming machine yeah 
It's good. I'm with you. It's a good device. Good. I'm glad you enjoyed it. We'll maybe follow up on that over the next couple of weeks and see how it's going. Well, I hope you have some games to report on that I've, I've picked up. So uh, fingers crossed for next week's sale. Fair enough. And don't forget Desperados 3, my recommendation from last I week. I did well. buy that last week. I haven't played it yet. So I need to set that installing. I will do that now. Fair enough. I think that's it for our main show. Shall we do an app of the week? Let's do it. Very quickly. I've got you know, my fascination with VPNs that I come and go on. Occasionally, you'll have a problem with a VPN where the router on the VPN you're connecting to is the same IP as the router you're connecting to, i.e. The, the NAT part of it, the network address translation, which can make you connecting to machines inside of your network problematic. I fixed this by installing yet another VPN. It's called TailScale, which only creates a network of the machines you opt into that. So the idea being, if you've got a Mac in the house that's running a web service, and you're out and about on your phone and you want to get to that particular web service, you can turn you leave your Mac in the house with TailScale on all the time. It creates a different network on that. You connect your phone and it only connects directly to that computer or other machines within the TailScale network. Their own IP is separate from everything else and you can access all the services, terminal, web things, remote desktop in, screen share on in Apple and whatever you want to do. It's VPN. It won't give you internet, protected internet, in the sense that it's not delivering the internet. You'll still use the internet on the device you're connected to out in the world. But inside of the network, you're able to do all the things on those machines. So you could remote into the machine that's in the house and use its internet, connect, you know, connect to it and then use the web browser on it or download the thing that you want to get out inside of your network. It's really neat. It's really well done. It's super easy. And just another little arsenal in my weaponry to, to get out and do things when I'm out in the world. Yeah, it looks good. And there's a free tier and the free tier looks very good. Like, to be yeah. fair, they're giving a lot, lot away for nothing. It's ridiculously generous. And it, the actual app itself is built built on WireGuard, which is the VPN that I actually use and the, for, for, for other bits and pieces on my VPN. So the backbone is an open source thing. I agree with you. The free tier is amazingly well specified. You can have three people and 100 devices. It's far more than most people will ever need. So it's it's a really good service. So if you have got something you think, I wish you could get that in the house. So for example, Synologies these days are quite good at being able to make themselves accessible on the internet. But if you didn't want to enable that, you could run TailScale on your Synology device, run that on your laptop. The Synology is on all the time. It doesn't make any sort of difference to the functioning of it. You can t- flick it on your laptop in there and you can download that file directly to it or stream the thing that you've got on there. Super, superb little bit of software. Yeah, no, it does look, look very good. And like I say, they've given a lot away for free. Yep, that's me, TailScale. Okay, so thin of the week for me, I'm going to say Steam Deck because I've been playing Commanders on it this week and I've had a very nice time. So I'm super happy with that. And yeah, hopefully more to report next week. Desperados is installing as we speak, so I can report on that next week too. Brilliant. I think we can call that a show. I think that's the show. So thanks to everybody for listening. And if you want to get in contact, you can catch Rod at g5maniac at masterdone.scot and I'm at underscore cjp at masterdone.social or do email us at wakefromsleep at protonmail.com. Talk to you next week. Cheers, Rod. 